This is episode 15 of the Immunology Podcast, Tuning the Immune Response with Dr. Anil Bhushan. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Raud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today we have Dr. Anil Bhushan from the University of California, San Francisco on the podcast to talk about understanding how the immune system senses and tunes its responses to senescent cells in disease and aging. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up, but first... Looking to stay current with the latest research and news in the fields of immunology and cell biology, we'd like to remind our listeners to check out Stem Cell Science News, featuring the most recent top peer review research and review papers, as well as industry, policy, and science news. Stem Cell Science News provides a platform that allows researchers to stay up to date with their fields while saving time. Subscribe for free at stemcellsciencenews.com. All right. Well, hello there. Hi, Jason. Have you been following the latest uh, Nobel Prize? Oh, uh, yeah. Chiral chemistry uh, using orga- small organic molecules for organic synthesis. Very interesting. I have to say a little bit out of my scope of knowledge, but sounds fascinating. I'm not, I cannot wait to read one of those nice overviews they give about the research they are awarding. I, I may also be a chemistry major in a past life and have uh, tutored and TA'd Orgo for many a year. Why am I not surprised? Yeah, but then also pain, you know, so we talk organic chemistry. I know it causes a lot of people pain and sensation, and that was the uh, Nobel Prize in uh, medicine and physiology. I will try to catch up to those uh, and, research topics. And I'll say bold possible. choice, not going for COVID researchers, but I also think a wise one. So it's it's speaking to the larger world and they can come back in a year or two once the pandemic is done and then and then give the people we all know our due one. Is it too early now? I think we're still in the middle of the that, thing. That's I the idea. I think wait. it may be a little early. It's like a little too trendy. The Nobel Prize, you know, they try to have the long view. <laughs> All right. Talking about long views uh, and broad views of immunology, what do you have today? Well, I don't know how long view this is given our current conversation, but we have, and, and, and it ties in organic chemistry as well. Here's a little segue just because of the, the second word. The first word being A. So the title of the paper is A Prenylated Double-Stranded RNA Sensor Protects Against Severe COVID-19. In science, first author is Arthur Wickigan. Last author is Sam Wilson. Uh, so this is an interesting paper, uh, prenylation being, you know, the post-ribosomal uh, post, uh, modification to add a, a lipid group onto a protein. Uh, but they show that they start getting into understanding the viral immune response in terms of like the other molecules we have. So not not external factors, but factors inside a cell. And some of those are uh, double-stranded RNA sensing proteins, which we have. One of those is called OAS1. And the way OSA1 works, not just for COVID, but for anything, is it will sense through binding, obviously, um, the presence of double-stranded RNA and then induces RNAs. Are an ACE L, which then kills things. It kills the cell, kills that's infected. Uh, but what they found here that was very interesting, and so they did a whole bunch of work, uh, and I can get in the mechanism in a second. But what they found is is that OSA OAS one through RNAs L inhibits 
SARS-CoV-2. Okay, so that's not that exciting because this is what that molecule would be presumed to do or ones in its family. There's other OASs that they show don't do this. But what was really interesting was they found that there's actually two isoforms of this, which is known P46 and P42. P46, the longer isoform, has the marker on it to get prenylated. And it's only that one that works. And this has to do with that COVID is, uh, or SARS-CoV-2, to be technical about it, is uh, manufactured in perimembranous organo organelles. And so without the prenylation, this OAS is not targeted to perimembranous organelles to function. And so there's also SNPs in people, so single nucleotide polymorphisms, such that if you have the one that's dot one SNP, you make more P42 than P46. So you don't have prenylated. And that makes you more susceptible to COVID in patients. They find this. The susceptibility to COVID is really in relation to the amount of prenylated OAS1 you have. The more prenylated OAS1 have, the less severe disease you have. And that's based on not just one SNP that makes you have more P42, but there's other SNPs that just make you not get prenylated. And they see that this correlates. And so it's really about the amount of prenylated OAS1 that can occur in your body limits your infection. And so this was a, a large, large amount of work. And it doesn't sound like it's going to be a lot of work to begin with. And then they just keep going deeper. They do a candidate screen with interferon-inducible genes. They do this in a cell-based system, really map out the pathway, blockade various genes, so OAS1, but not three, look at the polymorphisms, make mutations that can't be prenylated, map this all out in vitro, essentially, with culture systems showing that it works, and then they take it into people and show that it's really important there, too. And then they drop the gauntlet and get a science paper. What do you mean they, they drop it into people? So they, they show that severity of disease maps out this exactly. So that they, they can just take cases and sequence people and the severity of disease correlates with that ability to have P46 prenylation or not. The more, and so that you know, there's different variants in human so that where P46 isn't prenylated, where it is, or if you're a P42 dominant SNP. And so they show that the, the less prenylated OAS1 you have, the more severe your COVID. And does this prenylation also have some other effects on like outside of the context of COVID infection? It just targets something to the membrane. So it targets this OAS1 to the membrane. So other diseases where OS1 detects viruses that are not replicated in a uh, perimembranous replicative organelle, this doesn't matter. So it's very specific for, for coronavirus. Or for and, uh, other viruses that happen to have the same replicative structure. And a they go into animals and show that there is an ancient retrotransposon that ablated OAS1 prenylation in the horseshoe bats, which is where COVID virus, coronavirus, you know, SARS-CoV-2 comes from. Cool. So they lost I, the ability to resist this virus. I wonder if this, like, now, thank to modern science, we have the chance of saving the lives of a lot of people infected. But I wonder if this had happened in some kind of ancient situation with no sufficient medicine, then you would just, would that just generate kind of some kind of gene drive towards one of this? Oh, yeah. It would select uh, out the SNP that makes more of the non-prenylated version. Absolutely. Very oh, yeah. interesting. Oh, yeah. So, this, so they link this down to like, as I said, they really go deep. And they show that this applies to MERS 
and other, you know, similar viruses with similar replicative features, but not viruses that don't replicate similarly. Very nice. Um, well, now it's my turn, and I have a paper to share with you that I think you'll pretty much appreciate. It has a lot of things you like, so let me just get uh, on with it. Uh, title, Low New Antigen Expression and Poor T-cell Priming Underlie Early Immune Escape in Colorectal Cancer. Oh. First author, Peter Westcott from the lab of Tyler Jacks at the David Koch Institute at the MIT. And very interesting work. I personally enjoyed it very much. They are looking into, as I mentioned, colorectal cancer. So we know that colorectal cancers can be roughly divided into two groups that are very kind of important to their uh, prognosis and their treatment, which is microsatellite-stable and microsatellite-stable colorectal cancers. And uh, microsatellite-instable uh, cancers are usually characterized by a higher t- uh, tumor mutation burden because they have a more, um, what's the word, a less stable uh, DNA, so to say. And uh, the in- enhanced uh, mutational burdens in the instable uh, colorectal cancer usually relates to a higher expression of new antigens, and often patients respond better to immunotherapies and checkpoint inhibitors than uh, colorectal uh, cancers that are microsta- uh, microsatellite stable. And so the, the authors were looking into what other factors are also affecting the uh, capacity of the immune system to detect and to fight these tumors, these colorectal tumors, because what they see is that although they express less of them, uh, microsatellite stable MSS uh, tumors are actually are expressing some level of new antigens, and they do have some amount of mutation, which would potentially be able to be picked up by the immune system by, by T cells. So they look a little bit closer into the into the expression of new antigens in human samples of colorectal cancer from the human uh, the uh, cancer genome atlas, and they start doing some kind of fishing and looking in, into uh, previously uh, generated data. And they do see that, in fact, as, as, as expected, the MSS tumors have a lower mutational burden and have a lower amount of new antigens. But what's also interesting is that not only they have less different new antigens, but they express the ones they have, they usually expressed at a lower, at a lower level. So there's these two things that characterize the new antigens in MSS tumors. Uh, and they found that for all of these, all of the samples that were analyzing this data set, all tumors are expressing at least a couple of clonal new antigens, so new antigens that are expressed in in the uh, in, in in the whole in the whole tumor. So their question is, what is what is going on, and why are these new antigens not being picked up by the by the immune immune system? So they they try to uh, make a mouse model in which they have a uh, an antigen, a, a model antigen of albumin. And they are trying to induce colorectal cancer uh, in in mice. So they they inject in the in the colon of mice uh, lentivirus that are expressing Cree, and they're using mice that are flocks in APC, which is a, uh, is a which is a, uh, a knock, the knockout of APC is fairly common amongst colorectal cancers. And so 
they see that if they induce this and they have overexpression uh, on top of, of this of this knockout, they see that indeed the, the tumors are the few tumors that are developed, tumors are not developed as much. So there's an immune response against this over antigen. But those tumors that develop lose the antigen. And therefore the, the authors are finding themselves thinking this is not gonna work for us because we want to see what happened, what how the different antigens are affecting the immune response. And they make a new, they decide to move out of injecting this uh, Cree, the antivirus with Cree, and they actually move into injecting organoids. And they have an organoid which is quadruple mutant. They have an APC knockout or knockdown, SMAT4 knockout, CRAS mutations, and T TRP53 uh, knockout as well. But, and they include the expression of ovalbumin but they have different variations of this of this vector in which they end up expressing over at different levels, and this is the key. They end up having different um, cell lines that have that express over at different levels, and they have a high expressing cell line and a low expressing cell line, and cell lines kind of in between. And when they use this, and when they inject this this organoids into the colon to to start at a tumor in the mouse they see that the high expression of OVA, the, the, the high expressing cell lines, sorry, tumor organoids, really uh, end up being rejected by the mice. But those who are expressing OVA, but at low uh, levels, they, the tumors grow as in the no antigen, the no OVA control. And they, they see that this happens, um, this happens really, it's very important, the, the early time, it is very important how the expression of antigen is in the early time after the injection. And they see that uh, already early in the early time points, the, the antigens that have a low expression of the tumors have cells that already have a diminished effector function. And they start very quickly to show signs of dysfunction much faster and much more clearly that those T cells are, in, are infiltrating tumors that have a high expression of antigen. And so what they see, and kind of a long story short, they find that for them, what is very important is the expression of the new antigen really has a impact on the, on the priming and on the start of the T cell response. And they pinpoint the importance of these tumors that are expressing a low or a high amount of antigen being picked up by dendritic cells and this antigen is being presented to T cells, and the intensity of the presentation depends on the level of expression of the new antigen on those tumors. So under this logic, they see that if, if you have tumors that have a high expression of antigen, but are actually knockout for MHC1, they can still prime the immune response and mediate T and generate T cells that can pick up and kill tumors expressing a low amount of antigen. So it's not about the antigen expressed by the tumor, but about the antigen expressed by the cells that are picked up for DC presentation and priming of T cells. And so they they think about this in a more in vivo, so other in vivo experiments in which they find that therapeutic priming with neoantigens and also anti-CD40, which really activates antigen presenting cells, can be very beneficial and can mediate the priming of 
of the immune response, even in the situation of low antigen presentation. And it really makes a difference and synergizes when this combined anti-CD40 treatment, for example, is combined with immune checkpoints such as PD, anti-PD1. So they also looked, um, they also have some, uh, so they basically what they do is they start with looking at the humans, the human situation in which they find that the, the, the level of expression of these new antigens uh, kind of also predicts the, um, the 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 outcome of the uh, the outcome of the response, and they end up making this really interesting uh, mouse model in which they can have different levels of expression and evaluate specifically how that affects the immune response. Whew. All right. Well, so so does it sound like then that what's really it's about the dose, right? So high levels early on induce a stronger primed response that in the immune cells that then induces a kill effect where low levels generates tolerance. And so then hence checkpoint inhibitors and everything else will shift even lower levels to a kill response versus a tolerance response. Exactly. That is, and I think that's a very, uh, not widely, uh, spread idea that this initial priming, if the initial priming is very poor because there's not enough inflammation because usually, you know, tumors start small. And that can really lead to T cell dysfunction for, for these T cell clones that get activated and they're disconditioned. Excellent. All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna flip here and also talk about the colon. <gasps> Shock of shocks. Shocking. Yeah, you know. Well, when I saw when I saw this had popped up, it, it was a good one. It's an immunity. It is cognate recognition of microbial antigens defines constricted CD4 positive T cell receptor repertoires in inflamed colon. So it's uh, first author is Moritz Mushawek, and last all author is Oliver Patst. So this is one of those things where we already probably thought we knew this, but no one had actually shown that we know this. Uh, and that's actually why it's important is because really trying to understand some in-depth biology can get hard. So this entire paper is underpinned on using a T-cell model of colitis, a T-cell transfer model. So you take a rag knockout mouse and you give it T-cells and that develops colitis because all these T-cells are not used to being, uh, even, even though they should be you know, genetically very similar, uh, the T-cells freak out to the novel microbiome and then give you colitis. So what they see is that... Uh, they, they basically did this a whole bunch of ways and sequenced the TCA, the TCR alpha repertoires to understand what was happening in different scenarios of, of this. So they actually map out the T cell receptor repertoires and then they show that they can, you know, by various levels of sequencing as compared to more in-depth techniques, they can find that, yes, a quick sequencing can give you an understanding of these different repertoires and map out how, how clonal they are. And so to kind of dive in, what they did is they found that when you just do this generally, you get different repertoire. So if you just take a whole bunch of mites and transfer the same, the, the same pool of cells to different mice, you get different clonal expansions in the different recipient mice of their T cell receptors that are in, and they look specific interferon gamma and IL-17 producing cells. Um, but that these dom, but you get these dominant clonotypes were shared between these two different types 
of cells. They, they weren't able to do double interferon gamma IL-17 producing because of limitations and flow and then double mapping them and everything and then sequencing. They just, they just couldn't get that resolution. But this doesn't happen with FOXP3 regulatory cells. Um, identical clonotypes accumulated in the colons of different people, um, of different individuals. In this case, it was mice, right? But so if you, if you, you see clonal expansion and you see the same types of clones pop up across individuals, but if you give antibiotics to ablate different subspecies, that effect goes away. Basically, if you, if you window down either by having a definite colonization, so you put in a specific bacteria that's not normally there into all the mice, or you ablate a whole bunch of bugs with antibiotics. If the antibiotics have a strong effect on the microbiome, so they, 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 they sculpt in a consistent way, or again, you put a bug in, you get the same clones out in that case. It becomes more distinct patterns appear. And so you then, then you get the same thing. And then they did this really neat thing where they, they, they clonally expanded the cells before putting it in. And they saw that this, um, if you, so they saw, if you just take different cultures, again, if you take different naive T cells and you expand them out and you put them in to different mice, or if you take different T cells out and just pop them in, you get different clones that appear in everything. But if you clonally expand first, if you take cells, clonally expand them, and then pop them all into different mice, so right, the same clones all go in, a pattern emerges. And so the same clones then pop up. So basically, clones going in equals clones going out on the T cells. And that's what they really found, is that you basically have this pool of, you know, unselected four T cells with different TCRs, which we know, right? They're hanging out. And then which one wins at baseline is kind of a crapshoot. So you're going to have different clones that pop up in the system of induced colitis. But if you take a pool of cells and massively expand it and then introduce that clonally expanded pool, you're already biasing that cell through the clonal process to select for specific clones more than others. And those dominant clones then reemerge some subset of that when you then put it into a back microbiome background. So when you put it back into a mouse, it develops inflammation. You see these TCR clones populations repopulate. So you see the same clone appear in all the different mice as being a dominant clone. And so they're really showing that in the end, you kind of, you know, the, the way it's working in the gut is that you have these uh, two things, different microbial species, have dominant effects on the T cell repertoire. So specific bugs do it, other ones don't. So they show this by if you give vancomycin or a specific bacteria that's not normally there, you see it really hone in on that, the T cell repertoire. But if you give something like an aminoglycoside, which doesn't do this as much, it doesn't sculpt it in the, same, the microbiome the same way, you don't get the same like flag raising, like, oh, these same clones keep popping up. But, and then different, but it's the donor T cells. It's the T cells that you start with that defines the repertoires that pop up. So the same identical donor, the recipients transfer the same identical cells have similar TCR, TCR alpha repertoires. And that's what, what was very interesting. And then this also then goes along with the level of colitogenicity that goes along with it. So certain T cells are going to be more colitogenic. And so if you home in on that, you can then drive the disease 
by having that clone that's more collagenic past all the people, you're going to see similar colitis. If you have a more heterogeneous set of clones coming in, you have more heterogeneous levels of disease. So how far, far away are we from like the magic pill with the right bacteria to get the right T cells? Oh, yeah. Uh, a while. Looking at you. I know, <laughs> I know. Um, so I think the, the, the thing is, how would you switch the bacteria over? Everyone's coming into the game with different bacteria and different T cells. Yeah. So they, they, yeah. they do talk about how, oh, this could, you know, help understand diseases and stuff and tar but i think the real point is if you targeted dominant t cells and that's their point if you target dominant t cells that are causing disease you if you deplete those that's how you get rid of disease yeah. versus resculpting the microbiome you'd have to transplant them away from bacteria that are objectionable but what bacteria are objectionable to a t cell depend on the t cell clones in that host do they say why they are um, sequencing TCR alpha chains? Because it's usually the beta that gets So the, they, they or... showed that alpha and beta, they did both at the beginning. And mm -hmm. uh, they found that they had better data with alpha and that either doing alpha or beta predicted it, but that was less noisy with alpha, so they ran with alpha. They actually validated that first off. Okay, interesting. So they wouldn't have to double sequence. They basically did both in a subset, showed they had better reads with alpha, and then ran with it. Okay, fair enough. Okay, next, moving on to uh, um, my last uh, publication of the day. So this publication comes from the labs of Miles Brown and Shirley Liu at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. It's a bunch of first authors, um, and it was published in Cell. And it's titled, In Vivo CRISPR Screens Identify the E3 Ligase COP1 as a Modulator of Macrophage Infiltration and Cancer Immunotherapy Target. And that basically gives uh, away most of the work. So in this case, we're moving from colorectal cancer to um, triple negative breast cancer, which is also another, another cancer that is famously uh, refractory to immunotherapy. It's a very complicated cancer to treat. And uh, in this case, the authors are paying kind of a more close attention at the microenvironment and the tumor microenvironment because they also see that uh, that is probably the, the reason why this immunotherapy is not working is because there is something in the tumor microenvironment that is really getting in the way of the immune response. So what they do, as many people have been doing lately, they start they start with a very nice uh, CRISPR knockout library uh, that is targeting many genes that are related to cell proliferation, immune function, and site signaling. They have a very comprehensive uh, kind of um, coverage of all these 4,500 4, 4, genes, five uh, single guide RNAs per gene, and they use this to uh, modify for uh, T1 cells, which is a mouse uh, triple negative breast cancer cell line, uh, the, which is also expressed in OVA as a model antigen. And they transfer this, so they, they, they um, modify, they transduce this for T1 cells expressing OVA with this lentiviral uh, library, and they, in, uh, they inject these cells into the, 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 the different mice they have nude mice, which as they lack thymus, they don't have T cells. 
Uh, so they like T cell responses. They have uh, wild type bulb C, and they also have bulb C that had previously vaccinated with OVA. So they're kind of primed mice, and they show that. Uh, so they they follow the growth of this of these tumors, and of course, what they see is that um, nude mice are the ones who perform the worst. So they have the highest uh, tumor volume, and pre-treatment with ovalvumin uh, in wild type mice also reduces a little bit the tumor volume. So they they show that there is a level of uh, immune response against these tumors, but it's not enough because the, the mice end, end up dying anyway. So what they do is they, they look into, so they have these mice that have a knockout library and they look after uh, 16 days, after the, the tumor challenge, how, what are the differentially expressed genes in these in this, uh, tumors that are left after, that have grown after this amount of time. And they see, uh, they identify a series of, of, of genes that are um, differentially expressed and just kind of long story short, they identify one particular one, which is the COP1, COP1, which is a uh, ubiquitinase. Ubiquitinase. Ubiquitinase, exactly, that's the one. And uh, that is really one of the most, uh, mo the, the, one of the, the really the, the genes that are most, most pop up in this, in this uh, library. And they do, they do a second round with they chose the the highest the best the best uh, hits from this initial library with 45,000 4500 genes and they do a more focused library of those uh most promising uh, genes and they show that by uh, knocking out these genes again they they end up having lower tumor volume so that the tumors grow less and they see more T cell infiltration and again cop1 really pops up as one of the most interesting targets and really is the most significantly depleted gene in these tumors in the immunocompetent mice and because then they compare really compare the what the immune competent mice versus the nude mice in which the absence of cop one does not really affect the tumor viability in vitro or in nude mice that do not have a functional immune uh, t-cell response so they follow up on cop one knockout and they so they're trying to understand what is cop one doing that is mediating this effect this immune uh, in the immune response and what they see is that the those uh, t those uh, knockout cop one knockout uh, tumor cells are expressing significantly less uh, mac key macrophage chemiotractants and cytokines that are involved in macrophage activation and recruitment into the tumor and they also, when they look at the tumors, they see that there is a decreased macrophage infiltration in this COP1 knockout tumors, and without significant changes in other immune immune cells. And they really they really see that this is most likely the the mechanism by which, in, in the end, COP1 knockout is mediating a a reduction. So the the loss of of COP1 results in less macrophage recruitment and therefore less, less um, tumor escape because usually these macrophages are this kind of known as M2 or this uh, tumor associated macrophages that are not really, that really get in the way of the immune response more than anything else. So they look a little bit into the mechanism 
and they see that the most important target of COP1 that comes up, pops up from their analysis is CEP uh, delta, which uh, belongs to the CEPB family of transcription factors that regulate many biological processes. Uh, but in this case, uh, the, the absence or the overexpression of these of these uh, of these genes ends up uh, encoding these this, uh, macrophage attracting chemokines and results in a higher tumor growth. And I think what is very interesting is that they, when they look into uh, human samples, they go to the, the cancer genome atlas. Uh, this these guys do it as well. And they look into breast and colon cancer tumors, and they can see that in this data, they pick up that the COP1 expression is correlated with M2 macrophage signatures in this in this uh, tumors. They see that the expression of the the target of of COP1 is negatively correlated with this M2 uh, signature, and they see a positive association between COP1 protein and uh, macrophage-associated cytokines in this in the samples, including, for example, CCL2, CCL7, and other another uh, chemokines um, in this in this category. So they see also a correlation between COP1 expression and the survival of affected individuals in this cohort. So it kind of very they really make this um, very compelling case towards COP1 uh, activity being related to. A macrophage infiltration also in humans and thus affecting um, survival and, and progression of disease also in humans. So my question is how druggable is this? Because the instant you start doing an E3 ligase, you're messing up everything in its uncle. Yeah, that is, that's also, the authors also mentioned that it's a hard target to drugs. So they don't have a suggestion and they also don't know what drugging, like, uh, in this case, they have only the tumor being affected by the knock, knockout, so it's not clear what would happen if you put some systemic drug. Uh, so I think they are a little bit, at the moment, they don't have a drug they can use. Yeah, that that's always the hard part. Find a cool thing, but if you get rid of it, it doesn't work for you, yeah, the rest of you. Yeah, I think it was an interesting model. Uh, it was, was always is nice to see when the hit comes from one of these uh, big uh, screens. Uh, it's, it's nice to see how they, they work on it by well. Yeah. And then, and then that does it work. I mean, you know, people forget, uh, there's all types of things that are completely lethal to cancer, but that yeah. are also lethal to the rest of you. Well, but, but I think what is important is that this, as you said, this cup one would have not been picked up in a, in vitro uh, for example, screen. This only works in the in vivo situation. I think it's also important to keep in mind that often a lot of drugs are tested with kind of in vitro analysis. And then uh, if you're not, you don't have, in this case, you're not evaluating the effect of the immune response, yeah. which is so critical for this particular target. Yeah. So in this case, you know, it's probably going to work, but it may not be druggable. Yes. All right. Well, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Anel Bouchon at the University of California, San Francisco in just a moment. But before we get to that, explore scientific resources for your immunology research at the Stem Cell Technologies Immunology Learning Center. Choose from different research areas and find expert interviews, technical tips, educational webinars, instructional videos, and much more. Visit stemcell.com immunology research. Before we get into the episode, we'd like to give our listeners a heads up that Jason is not in the studio today, but he's cutting into the interview while traveling. So you may notice a difference in the quality of his audio, and we're sorry about that. Now back to the show. 
Hi, everyone. Today we're joined by Dr. Anil Bushan. He is the professor at the Diabetes Center of the University of California in San Francisco and also co-founder of Decidious Therapeutics, a company based on his research. Uh, he's joining us today from San Francisco. We're really happy to have you uh, today talking to us. Welcome. Thank you. So uh, a lot of your research uh, is around the impact of senescence and senescent cells on, on the organism and the role that the immune system has in clearing the cells from uh, a, healthy, a healthy organism. And I think many immunologists might not think a lot about senescent cells and senescence in general. So maybe you could, we could start this conversation with you telling us a little bit more about what is senescence and what, how, what is the role of the immune system in uh, managing these cells? Yeah, so that's an important question. I mean, we are unfortunately limited by the word senescence associated with aging, but uh, really senescent cells are damaged cells or cells that are somehow aberrant um, that need to be recognized by the immune system and removed. I mean, there's, there's four major triggers of senescence that we know of today. One is a DNA damage induced senescence because of injury or um, because of other metabolites or something that damaged the DNA in the cells that then release the DNA uh, exogenously in the cell, which then is uh, recognized by the immune system and removed. Um, and this happens in many chronic diseases, uh, which we'll get into. Um, the other uh, um, you know, major way the cells become senescent are, are what's called the oncogene-induced senescence. These are senescent cells that are turned on because of uh, tumor cells. Um, and the 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 third uh, major category is is the viral-induced senescent cells, and this is more recently shown in in a couple papers. Is you know, it's been shown in the last five years, but more recently, just last week, in a couple papers on SARS-CoV-2, and the, and and leading to uh, senescence in in uh, in in the epithelial cells that it infects. Um, and again, it's it's the same way the immune system recognizes these infected cells and it removes them. Um, and and the fourth way is radiation. Radiation also leads to senescent cells, and again, the immune system recognizes them and removes them. So these are the four triggers of senescence. And senescent cells are basically a response to these triggers, and they exit the cell cycle, upregulate some classically cell cycle genes that are uh, exit uh, cell cycle inhibitors that are upregulated, and then there is a DNA repair going on if it's a DNA damage or various repairs for the cells to happen. And when, when there's a decision that the cells cannot fix the problem, they turn on what's called a secretory profile or otherwise known as SASPs, an essence associated secretory profile. And this is what then communicates with the immune system and, and leads to its own removal. So I like naps. Um, what's wrong with a senescent cell? So we, we talked about how we get there, but I think I think it's important for the audience to understand what's wrong with them. Why why shouldn't we have senescent cells? Why does the immune system need to clear them versus just having some cells at rest? Sound you know 
that sounds good to me on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, uh, especially if you're watching television. Uh, <laughs> no, so so the reason these these cells are 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 um, essentially they create havoc in their microenvironment. So they have a secretory profile that includes growth factors, um, extracellular remodeling, make you know extracellular matrix remodeling enzymes. Uh, cytokines, chemokines. I mean, it, it's a whole host of over 60 factors that a secreted senescent cell releases. And that really it has a lot of non-cell autonomous effects, which meaning that they affect the local cells, not themselves necessarily, but other cells around them. Um, and they generally create havoc where they are. Um, and part of the reason evolutionary these these this whole thing is designed is so that it it then communicates to the immune uh, cells around it to recruit them, make a way for them almost you know essentially like the construction workers, they build a highway for the immune cells to arrive to them. and then they also have flags to say, this is me, you know, get rid of me. Um, and so all of that process is evolutionarily conserved in some sense in wound healing, for instance, or other, uh, you know, during development. Um, and and so they their their general way is is that they they're creating havoc to get rid of themselves. And once they're removed, then there's renewal in the tissue. Um, and if they hang around, then then they just create a lot of havoc. And that's how a lot of diseases um, come about. That's our, our, you know, that's our, hypo not hypothesis, but that's our, uh, essentially the basis of a lot of our work. You just mentioned senescent cells in the case of COVID uh, and COVID-2 infection. Where else do we often, or we have senescent cells that are causing maybe disease or particularly particular places where these cells are found? Yeah, so the most often, you know, um, senescent cell, so these cells form, I should make that very clear, these, the senescent cells form probably all the time. You never see them because when you have an efficient immune recognition and removal, then they are removed and, and it's never an issue. The only reason you see senescent cells accumulate in a tissue or in a body is when your immune system fails to remove them. So that that was the key conceptual, um, you know, uh, recognition that came in our lab about three four years ago, and um, and so the idea is that this immune surveillance system that is built in the body um, naturally is failing to recognize these senescent cells, removing them, and that's when you see accumulation. The most often tissue in humans that you see accumulation is in the adipose. So in, in, the, um, in the fat tissue, in the, in the white adipose tissue, um, there is um, a lot of, you know, it, it's heavily immune infiltrated as well, but there is the, the, uh, there are a lot of progenitor cells. These are mesenchymal, uh, origin progenitor cells that give rise to a lot of um, cell types within the adipose, as well as they have the ability to give rise to many other cell types like bone and others. These are these stem progenitor cell-like population, and, and they tend to get, um, uh, they, they, they become senescent 
um, and we can go into reasons why. And once they become senescent, they, there is the, the general progenitor population for the adipocytes um, is, is reduced. And, and so that's typically one common area where you see accumulation of senescent cells. So on this topic, so you just recently published a paper in this journal uh, from Cell Comed, I think it's a recently uh, launched journal, and in which you are looking particularly in one subset of, of uh, immune cells, which are invariant NKT cells, and that can uh, find there's one particular target that they recognize on senescent cells. Would you like to tell us more about this, uh, the work that your uh, your lab did on this regard, and maybe whether there are other immune cells and other targets that are also involved in immune clearance of senescent cells? Yeah, so, you know, um, the way we landed on this is, um, is what we did is we mined our single cell um, RNA-seq analysis of senescent cells. Um, and when we look, this allowed us to, to one, you know, um, categorize senescent cells separately because there's no real actual method to, um, to you know, to really um, look at senescent cells um, sort of um, by flow cytometry. You know, you can create some enrichment methods, but there's no real way to just, there's no marker for senescent cells that you can use to and you know to to isolate senescent cells so so what we did is we we enrich for senescent cells and then we we based on transcriptional profile we could look at senescent cells in a deep fashion and compare it to other cells um, and and what was striking and, and really obvious was that one of the big things that was changing in senescent cells was the antigen processing machinery itself was altered and when we looked at the antigen processing machinery, uh, which you know consists of a lot of MHC class one molecules, but also the, the you know the top consistently the top uh, upregulated gene was what's called beta two microglobulin B two M, which is an architectural protein that supports all the MHC class one molecules. So we said, oh well, you know there's something going on there. So let's identify which MHC class one molecules are upregulated in senescent cells. Uh, we couldn't see that in the in the RNA-seq, so we, we designed a simple screen where we took uh, these progenitor adipocytes uh, from mice, and then we, we could culture them in vitro and make them senescent uh, by treating them with, with chemotherapy agents to make them senescent. So it's a very classical way to do in vitro senescence. Um, and uh, with that, we could then screen for all the MHC class one molecules we could think of. Um, and, and one of them stood out right away, which was a MHC one class one like molecule called CD1D. And, and that was the key essentially to the lock that we, we had because CD1D is it, it only communicates with the INKT cells. And the way it does is it, it presents a lipid antigen, unlike most other MHC class one molecules, which present peptide antigens, CD1D presents a lipid antigen. And, and CD1D lipid antigen bound, you know, a presentation recruits and activates the INKT cells. So that's how we got into the identification of the INKT cells. 
the, I should mention again, the INK T cells are a subset of T cells that have some characteristics of the innate immunity like NK cells, but they have, like all T cells, they have a, a TCR, a, a uh, T cell receptor, which is, you know, specifically is uh, in, in the VDJ recombination is, is, is mostly invariant, so the alpha chain is always the same. Um, and uh, so, and it recognizes the lipid antigen bound to CD1D, and that's actually how we, we isolate NKT cells or or identify them in flow cytometry is, is using a what's called a tetramer, which is a CD1D bound to a lipid antigen, and that's how we identify. So to take this a little higher level, there's too many senescent cells in adipose tissue. I assume America that may have something be related in some way to America's growing BMI, for example. What happens if you can pull the trigger like you show in some of your research and you get rid of them? What does that mean downstream for uh, patient health? Yeah, so I mean, this is where you know it becomes interesting. Um, so, so here we have this mechanism that we elucidated. The question is, how could we therapeutically harvest this? Um, and uh, and uh, so the way it works is that if you, you know, we designed a simple mechanism where um, what if, it, first of all, we, we look to see, you know, if the senescent cells are accumulating in the adipose tissue in the mice as well as in humans. We, you know, we figured, uh, we, we just characterized that, which is just a, a descriptive uh, Issue, but but more importantly is when, when we look at the INKT cells surrounding. So the INKT cells, um, unlike most, they, these are resident INKT cells. So they they the adipose INKT cells live there. They you know they take on their own identity, living in the adipose tissue. They they like they like immigrants in a country. Um, they then you know come. They have their own Thanksgiving and everything. So. Um, they they live within the adipose tissue and um, and um, they when we isolated these INKT cells from compared them to adipose tissue with senescent cells or without senescent cells, what turned out to be one is that they are reduced in numbers. So first of all, you, you could tell right away that the numbers are like, like almost half, and this was not really you know coming necessarily from our lab and it was gratifying. Uh, I mean, we could confirm that, but it was initially described by uh, a lab in, in Boston, Lydia Lynch's lab. And so these were, you know, highly uh, reduced in numbers, but also they were, they were less active. They had less activation markers, like what's classically called CD69 or others. They were, so they were, they were essentially what we would call energic, sitting in, in, and unable to, to function. And so we said, okay, can we then reactivate these cells, and then would that remove the senescent cells? That was the, you know, the crux. Can can we, if we can do that, then we can certainly make this this more uh, therapeutic. And so we delivered a, you know, a lipid classical lipid antigen called alpha gal sir, uh, uh, which is a microbial derived lipid antigen that is specific for for activation of INKT cells. And upon delivery of these um, lipid antigens, uh, within, within hours you could see the activation of INKT cells, and that's classically, you know, 
the cytokine release profile that's typical of INKT cells, and you can measure that in the blood. So it's a good biomarker for activation. Um, and also four days later in a mice, we could then look at the resident INKT cells in the adipose tissue and see one that we have a great expansion of the numbers of these cells. So they, they went up to you know 10 to 20 fold um, in, in, and expanded as well as they clearly have uh, activation markers now active. So we, we could activate the INKT cells. Then we looked at the senescent cells in the adipose tissue and we could see that they are now depleted. So that was how we connected and shown that activation of INKT cells in, in, in a, let's say, in, in a uh, model, in a high-fat diet model in a mice where they accumulate uh, could be removed um, by activation of INKT cells. And then I guess my question therapeutically is, let's say we can do that. How do you only activate those and not turn on your body's entire immune system and then give, you know, cytokine storm or systemic immune activation syndromes or other right. other problems that we see, let's say immunotherapy as a, as right. a common example? So, so the fortunate part of this is there's two things uh, fortunate. Well, I should also say there's two parts of this. Removing senescent cells was not just academic, but we can go into this later, but it was had a physiological effect on, on the disease that they caused. But we'll, we'll get into that later. But the question that you asked, which is a very valid question, is are we activating a lot of you know general activation of the immune system leading to a cytokine storm? I mean, so there's two things that are worked in our favor um, to some extent. One is that the percentage of INKT cells within the body is so small, they make up an amazingly small fraction, you know, between 0.1 to 0.5% of the cells. So if these cells start to secrete cytokines, it's still a very minuscule amount compared to activating, you know, cytotoxic T cells or others, which make up a large fraction of the, you know, lymphocyte population. So, so cytokine storm wasn't such a big an issue because of its small numbers. Two, because of a surveilling system, there is a natural turnoff of this activation. So it's a very transient activation. So we we turn we activate with a lipid antigen. These cells respond and and release their you know their cytokines very early on and then proliferate and and then. There's a natural shutoff mechanism. The TCR of these cells are, are is endocytosed, and they undergo apoptosis, and um, the numbers are back down. So within in a mice, within 10 days, the numbers are back down to the low levels that we have seen before. So clearly, this is a transient activation, and we limit the amount of you know secondary activations. But uh, but it is true that the INKT cells can activate other uh, cell types as well, but we haven't seen any sustained activation of other cell types around them or, or, or systemic changes that allow. So th this seems to be a very transient activation. Talking again uh, about what are, are there any diseases that are characterized by an accumulation of senescent cells, or is maybe that it's not only aging is, is aging a consequence of accumulation of senescent cells or what kind of uh, diseases could we treat for example by being able to selectively deplete these cells 
Yeah, so every you know month we seem to find a new disease that has accumulation of senescent cells. I mean, this is a very active field, um, and you know a lot of labs um, have been showing a lot of diseases uh, that are due to the accumulation of senescent cells. So um, there's a couple labs at the Mayo Clinic that have generated genetic mice models where they keep showing um, you know in many different disease models where they can deplete the senescent cells and show efficacy, uh, primarily from James Kirkland's lab and from uh, Darren Baker's lab. And these are people that have been showing uh, accumulation of senescent cells in, in many different diseases. You know, I, and to just, you know, to name a few, uh, you know, what we I hinted on was, you know, type 2 diabetes, but also um, you know, the arteriosclerosis is another uh, example, um, the chronic kidney disease, uh, and, um, you know, it can, the, the list goes on and on. We've shown for type 1 diabetes, which is even in pa pediatric patients, uh, in many neurodegenerative diseases, and, you know, in some cases, in, in and, and of course, in, in a lot of cancers that senescent cells play a role in, in, in its progression. So, so the, 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 uh, the, the problem in this field is not that there's not enough diseases to go after with senescent accumulation. The problem is it's a plethora of diseases in the question, especially in, when you're starting you know, a company that needs to focus, a small company, you, you know, a big part of the time is spent on indication selection. Before we move that move to uh, the work you have been doing uh, with your company, bringing this uh, a therapy uh, to the patients, I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about. In, uh, so, what do we know about invariant NKT cells? Do they only so far are they only have been found targets that are this kind of kind of uh, lipid uh, targets, or are there other antigens that are these these cells are also recognizing? Um, so there's different classes of INKT cells as well. So there's, you know, the class one, class two, and class two is not really what we're targeting. They're not truly invariant, they're semi-invariant. Um, and um, they are involved in, in, you know, some autoimmune diseases. Um, and uh, they actually, I mean, their activity is, is, is needed and, and important. So we need to make a distinction between class one, class two, NK, INKT cells, or NKT cells, I should say. The INKT cells are typically class one um, NKT cells. Um, and um, they, you know, they, they play multiple roles. They, they're generally roles in recognizing foreign cells, whether they're microbial antigens, which is, you know, typically of bacterial uh, uh, origin, which is happens to be a lot of lipids that that expressed in these microbial. Um, so, so they really are a surveilling system to protect us from invading pathogens, as well as uh, um, yeah, you know, essentially recognizing foreign cells that shouldn't belong to us. Which is you know the flip side of autoimmunity as well. So um, that's always there. So I wanted to flip into your biotech deciduous that you've your startup that you've been working on, which presumably is to help get some of this to that next level, which means eventually patients. Um, without stepping on anything you can't talk about, when you think about talking to people and explaining what disease targets you're going after, 
with with like presumably these lipid antigens, what comes to mind first? What is the thing that you're going after to investors or just on on the road in a biotech going, hey, this is this is what this can be for right now based on what we know today. As you said, lots of diseases keep showing its importance, but there has to be right. some top of the list that drives that yeah, drives so, now. So first thing to recognize and 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 part of it is to to educate the investors is that this is a new way of treating disease. Um, the classical way of treating, let's say, I, I give you an example of type 2 diabetes. You know, type 2 diabetes uh, is treated by saying, oh, you have high blood glucose, we need to control the glucose. Um, and, um, and so the treatment is typically focused on either the non-functioning of the pancreatic beta cells or the, um, the ability to, to metabolize glucose and, and, and get rid of it. So that's where all the treatments, you know, that's the traditional pharma uh, approach, you know, the, 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 the Nova Nodisc, Merck, Eli Lilly, and, you know, that's what they have focused on. What, what, what we are trying to do, for instance, and I'm just using type 2 diabetes as an example, is that this disease is not focused on one cell type or one organ, but it is actually uh, in multiple organs and, and what they call complications really come from the fact that accumulation of senescent cells occurs in multiple tissues in this disease state. So in the liver you have accumulation and there's a lot of correlation between you know, non-alcoholic uh, liver disease, fibrosis disease with, uh, with type 2 diabetes. Um, there's also the chronic kidney disease that comes associated with type 2 diabetes, as well as, as I mentioned, arteriosclerosis and cardiac fibrosis. So, um, and on all of these tissues show accumulation of senescent cells. So when, when you are systemically removing senescent cells, you're actually treating a disease holistically rather than looking at its symptomatic outcomes and treating it that way. So this is a, almost a paradigm shift in how you treat a disease. And, and this is what we need to educate investors on, on how, how different this is from previous efforts and, and how, you know, in a, in a holistic way that we're trying to treat a disease. So, um, but given the question that you asked is given the fact that there's so many diseases that have this issue, we, as a company, you need to, as a small company, you need to focus on some initial targets um, that that are doable. A type 2 diabetes trial is outrageously expensive and you can't really do it without major pharma buy-in. Um, and, and so the idea is, is and, and to prove the efficacy of these diseases, the, the, the plan for deciduous is to, is to, um, do a clinical trial um, in a phase 1b sort of a basket trial where you have multiple indications patients that you have you know these this will not be in any way uh, exhaustive but at least it gives you indications of, of multiple indications that you can choose um, to enroll patients in and then decide on which phase 2 trial you can go into that's feasible given the money that the company will raise to do it. Uh, one example, for instance, is idiopathic lung fibrosis, which is a small population, but it's more manageable to do. Um, and then, you know, there's chronic kidney disease that is also manageable uh, in some ways. So, so th those are the kind of things that you look for. 
how has been your experience so far uh, moving into the biotech industry, trying to transform your kind of academic research into something that can be presented to investors and that can actually be developed into a treatment option? Um, yeah, I mean, it's part of my evolution as a, you know, as a scientist, as a person as well. I mean, I started my career in science studying absolutely very basic issues of cell differentiation in early germline formation. And, uh, you know, uh, at some point, it, it, I would have liked to see, you know, translation into disease areas. Um, and, and, you know, when this opportunity arrived where I could see a simple, uh, not a simple, but at least a, a therapeutic pathway, um, I, I jumped at it because I, I wanted to, you know, translate our ivory tower thinking into actual benefits to the human population. That is uh, quite fascinating. And I really I look forward to see how the... Yeah, you can if you can uh, reach clinical trials and whether your therapy shows some uh, promising results. Uh, it's been really interesting talking to you about your research, and I think that uh, before before our conversation, I was really interested in understanding how we can you know, use the immune system to uh, such an important thing as clearing up the senescent cells, and how we can really and in a way. Um, yeah, I didn't know we can use this as a therapy for, for certain diseases. Anyway, um, I think we uh, would like as an end of our show, we usually like to ask our guests like a question uh, a little bit outside uh, our, their research. So Jason, maybe you can uh, you can go ahead. Yeah, we, we always keep it fresh, right? We don't want to get senescent ourselves. So uh, <laughs> and the question for today is what do you think is the biggest misconception in science you would like to resolve you could wave your wand and fix it in all of our brains so so i i interpret that question as what is the biggest misconception of science in in the public domain and and um my my view was um i had you know i lived in los angeles for 12 years where i had my lab at ucla and and we had often you know encounters with with the hollywood crowd and, um, you know, my neighbors were, you know, part of the Hollywood industry and names you would recognize, but I won't say it. But, um, and, you know, we would have occasionally people come into the lab, you know, major producers and things um, because they felt, you know, donating some money or whatever it was. Um, you know, we were just show ponies at that point. But um, the the problem I had is is the depiction of scientists in 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 hollywood and and this is the to me the biggest misconception is and then and i told this to people but you know for you know there's always this association of mad scientists which is completely you know nonsense um but somehow that's always permeated in into into hollywood and also um if anyone has ever done any time in a in a lab you know being a postdoc or a graduate student or something the, the amount of, you know, drama and dynamics that goes on in a lab could really be a basis of any, any sitcom uh, that you see. So, so this is where I, I know, I, I, I think scientists as, 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 you know, normal 
as as human beings should be more portrayed in Hollywood, and that's the biggest misconception that I I have a pet peeve. I would definitely watch that sitcom. Um, <laughs> drama in the lab i think i definitely think it's about time uh that they do something of that sort you should you should just uh, use your contacts um i know for, for I, i don't know what your podcast outreach is but you know hollywood if they're listening i, <laughs> I, I can join into screenwriting <laughs> and as the last thing uh any uh, positions at your lab or or maybe at your company that you would like to just uh, advertise feel free this is the moment oh yes i i'm always looking for um postdoctoral fellows um and you know i just got an email yesterday from someone who was supposed to come next month but decided that they don't want to stay in academia and this is a problem we all encountering a lot and but you know the 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 I can speak as myself. My postdoc years were absolutely, you know, the time when you don't have to worry about money and you can just build hypotheses and spend money like crazy. And, and you know, it's the PI's job to bring the money in. So this is a good time to 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 spend time in the lab. Um, so postdoctoral fellows, I don't look for any particular training, but just curiosity of science and um, you know, contemporary molecular biology techniques, and and that's my you know i would love to get you know someone a response to this that would be great well there you go anybody interested you can check out uh anil bushan's lab uh also his latest publication at med uh, about the INK, INK t cells and senescence and thank you so much for joining us it's been a super interesting conversation thank you for thank you me. it was fun that brings us to the end of our show Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at @immunopodcast or via email at info@immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time. <laughs>